Mark chapter 7, where we left off, beginning in verse 14, it says, When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand, there is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, what comes out of a man that defiles a man for from within out of the heart of men proceed Evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. In the first part of chapter 7 and verses 1 through 13, Jesus had exposed the hypocrisy of those who prefer religion over relationship. But now Jesus is going to expose the hypocrisy of the human heart in verses 14 through 23. Remember that there are those people who prefer hypocrisy to sincerity. And so in this chapter, Jesus will answer the question and continue with the answer that the religious leaders asked early on. Why aren't your disciples washing their hands according to the Jewish tradition, according to the tradition of the elders? You see, the religious leaders had taken a spiritual truth, cleansing, purity, and then they represented it with a meaningful symbol, washing. But the meaningful symbol was ritualized and it became a a, a physical exercise. After that, the rite served as a substitute for the spiritual experience that it was meant to represent. It was meant to represent a purification that takes place on the inside. At some point, God's law and God's intentions were replaced by a ritual. The religious leaders confused the washing of the hands and they lost sight of the washing of the heart. But the religious leaders did something way worse. Their very ritual became an excuse to participate in sin. Jesus argues that it's not What you touch on the outside that renders you impure, it's what comes out of your heart and what comes out of your mouth. Remember, the religious leaders believed contact with the Gentiles rendered a person unclean, defiled. It's very, very hard for most of us to understand that concept in a way. I think that's good. 
I grew up part of my life in the South, in the deep South of New Orleans. And in New Orleans, they had segregation and segregation in the late 50s and the early 60s were profound. You had black restrooms and white restrooms. You had black drinking fountains and white drinking fountains. You had white restaurants and black restaurants and I grew up in a, in, a, in a circumstance where we had a public park that was for white people and a public swimming pool for white people and it grew up in such a circumstance that some people thought that the very act of participating with a black person was somehow degrading. I had friends literally who believed that if they shook hands with a black person that somehow that they would be defiled. That's the kind of wickedness that we're dealing with. When I was growing up, there was a discipline fad among the people of my mom's generation. She thought that if you spoke a dirty word, well, the solution was to wash the offender's mouth out with some of you remember. But my mom was always careful what she washed our mouth out with. She always used Dove because it was 99.9% pure soap. So when people ask me the question, have you ever eaten Dove? I can honestly say yes. Soap in the mouth is unpleasant. But no amount of soap in a child's mouth will clean a child's heart. Someone said, the right kind of heart is a kind heart, like God's. The famous Puritan preacher Richard Baxter wrote, quote, See that your chief study be about your heart, that there God's image be planted and his interests advanced and the interests of the world and flesh subdued and the love of every sin cast out and the love of holiness succeed. In order to change the heart, we have to have a different heart. The writer in Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 said, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it the issues of life come. And so in verse 14, we see the servant's declaration. When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand... There's nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him or make him impure or unclean. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. Jesus declares that the source of holy living comes from the inside. That outward forms can never replace inward faith. That observing man-made rules doesn't give us permission to neglect or ignore or replace the word of God. And so in verse 16, when he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. The understanding was that there would be plenty of people who wouldn't. We sang this song. Open up my eyes. Open up my heart. Open up my ears. But I need you to understand something for the religious leaders. This was hard to hear for the observant Jew who practiced a, a, a strict separation from the, the Gentiles. It was absolutely positively impossible to believe that the laws of kosher, that the dietary restrictions and the prohibitions were largely symbolic. 
But Jesus was paving the way for what Paul would later call one new man, where Jew and Gentile were united together, not on the basis of dietary restrictions or prohibitions, but on the basis that we have a new life. It's in God's Messiah. God's instructions to his covenant people were to remain separate from the surrounding nations. And so religious Jews were under the impression that separation from sin meant separation from sinners. Well, does this mean that a person can drink alcohol or take drugs or injections and not expect any harmful effects? That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage isn't to suggest for a moment that there aren't stupid things that you can do to your body. But rather, it is a stupid idea to think that food has a spiritual impact on the body. In Romans chapter 14, verse 21, Paul wrote, It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. You see, for the Christian in the first century, particularly if you were Jewish, the dietary restrictions and prohibitions were in part to create a mechanism where false worship wouldn't take it. It's hard for you to understand, but let me help you understand. In some religious cultures in Greece and Rome, they would offer sacrifices of goats, chickens, and any variety of different animals. And when they were sacrificing the animal, they would invite the deity to inhabit the animal. Then they would cut the animal's throat, and then they would bake that animal, and they would eat that animal in the hopes that they could participate in, in the life and the power of the deity. And so this is something very, very difficult for the observant Jew to comprehend. In verse 17 it says, When he had entered a house, probably Peter's house, away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. Remember, each and every one of Jesus' disciples or apostles at this particular moment are observant Jews. They had grown up in a Jewish household. They had observed the dietary laws and prohibitions and restrictions that are found in Leviticus chapter 11. And so Jesus will give an explanation in verse 18. Look what it says. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? In other words, there is this sense in which Jesus says, how come you're not understanding and getting what I'm saying? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? In other words, how can you not understand that? Ritual and religion cannot substitute for relationship. And now he's going to also talk about how can you not understand that hypocrisy can never substitute for sincerity? He's, in, in Romans chapter 14, verse 17, Paul writing, he says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God doesn't consist of what you eat or don't eat, what you drink or what you don't drink, but the components are righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, Paul writes, But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we we eat, are we the better? Nor if we do not eat, are we the worse? But there are many religious traditions that suggest 
that food itself is some sort of spiritual event. That if you eat certain foods, you're more spiritual. Or if you refrain from eating certain foods, you're less spiritual. But Jesus is going to solve this problem in verse 19. Because he says, it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. By the way, the word translated heart is cardia. You know that word. A cardiologist is a person who's a heart doctor. When you talk about a cardio workout, it, it has to deal with your heart. These are, this is a word that we borrowed from the, the Greek language. And so depending on the context, it can mean the physical organ that's inside of your chest. But it can also mean the inward person or our inward being. And so in this case, in, in verse 19, because it does not enter the heart, there is a sense in which he's talking about the physical organ, but also the inward man. When you eat food, it goes in your mouth. It goes down your esophagus. It goes into your stomach. It passes through the duodenum. It goes through the intestinal tract and all of that other stuff. And then you know what happens afterwards. I don't have to tell you. And so when he says our heart is our inward life, it's the inner person. It's the character. It's everything that preoccupies you. The heart is the seat of our emotions. The heart can also be the source of our reasoning or our understanding or our thinking. The heart is referenced in the Bible as the source of spiritual being. It's talked about in reference to our conscience in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Our will in Romans chapter 6, verse 17. Our faith in chapter 11 of Mark, verse 23. Romans chapter 10, verse 10. But it also speaks of the evil in our life. Here, in Mark chapter 7. Verses 21 through 23, but also in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Many of you are familiar with the passage. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? But the very next verse in Jeremiah 17, 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. According to Jeremiah, who can know the human heart? Not you. Not me. We can somehow superficially become in contact with this cesspool. But God knows it. He sees it. And in a sweeping statement, Jesus will set aside the Jewish dietary laws that are found in Leviticus chapter 11. And by the way, the apostles will have a tough tough time with their newfound freedom. As a matter of fact, by the time we go through the book of Acts, chapter 1, 2, 3, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, Peter's still observing kosher dietary laws and prohibitions and restrictions. Jews, by the way, according to Leviticus 11, weren't allowed to eat camel or rat or bat or pigs. Jews could eat fish with both fins and scales, but they weren't allowed to eat octopus, eel, shellfish, lobster, crab, oysters. I know some of you are thinking, neither do I. 
In chapter 11, there are 20 different birds that are listed as unclean. The kite, which is a small bird of prey. The fisher owl. Certain insects were banned. By the way, if you were a Jew, if the insect had four legs, can't eat it. I know what you're thinking. Don't want to. You were restricted from large lizards, small lizards, gecko, the monitor lizard, the sand reptile, the chameleon. I know what you're thinking. Oh, the other green meat. You're probably thinking, I don't want to eat that either. In the South, you'll sometimes eat alligator. Alligator tail. You know what it tastes like? It's disgusting. Think of lard colored green. So you can imagine when Peter goes out and he sees a large sheet from heaven descend with bats and rats and elephants as sure as you're born. All of these unclean animals from Leviticus chapter 11. And he hears a voice say, rise up, slay and eat. And Peter goes, I'm an observant Jew. Nothing unkosher, nothing unclean has ever come into this Jew's mouth. And the Lord told Peter, why would you call unclean what I've declared to be clean? Because what was at issue wasn't just simply eels and shellfish and lobsters. It was this mechanism called the Gentiles. Because remember, to the Jew, to the Jew... When they saw the Gentiles eating what was disgusting, they drew the conclusion that the Gentiles were disgusting. If they eat what God hates, then God must hate them. And you might think that this has absolutely nothing to do with you, but this is the legalism and the challenge that we each and every one of us face. Because according to whatever prohibitions or inhibitions or restrictions that you go by, when you begin to look at your unsaved family and you look at your unsaved friends and you look at their unsaved circumstances and you look at their unsaved life and you begin to think that their brain and their mouth and their activities are what alienate them from God, you are making at least in part a mistake because the thing that alienates them from God is the fact that they don't have a right relationship with God in Christ. So why did the Lord command the people of Israel to observe these dietary restrictions? Some scholars suggest that the foods were in part disgusting and diseased, which is a good enough reason to stay away from them. But most likely the animals were used in connection with other kinds of practices of idolatry. And so for both health of the body and purity of the soul, the Jews needed to be separated. And clearly some food is injurious to the body. Have you ever eaten really bad sushi? It can hurt you. But I want you to think for a moment. Because the Jews came to believe that the Gentiles ate what God despised, they became despised. And now their religious ritual has resulted in sin. And so in verse 20, it says he's going to illuminate them. And he said, what comes out of a man? That's what defiles the man. 
The venerable Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote, quote, There is a deep truth in these words which is frequently overlooked. Our original sinfulness and natural inclination to evil are seldom sufficiently considered. The wickedness of men is often attributed to bad example, bad company, peculiar temptations, the snares of the devil. It seems forgotten that every man carries within him a fountain of wickedness. We need no bad company to teach us and no devil to tempt us in order to run into sin. We have within us the beginning of every sin under heaven, unquote. Do you realize given the right circumstances, there's probably no evil, no wickedness. There's no sin that you wouldn't participate in. And so. Very few of us would debate over what is filthy. What is evil? What is wrong? We debate over what is good. But you have to understand it's the good that opposes the best. And you might be thinking, this is what's good for me. It's good for me that I go to church but not have Jesus. It's good that I open up my Bible but I don't read the parts about the cross. It's good that I read about the morality of Jesus but all the while dismiss the sin because that might mean that I'm a sinner. In need of a savior. It's good for me to go to church for my children's sake. It's good for me to go to church for my wife's sake. It's good for me to go to church for my family's sake. And so. There's a quiet. Personal. Hypocrisy. Taking place inside of the heart. Because there's no. Reason. To change. Look what it says in verse 21 for from within. Out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders. By the way, we're given a glimpse, a picture of the progression of sin in that particular passage. Number one, it begins in our human nature. Jesus from within. Out of the heart. It's reaffirmed in Matthew chapter 15. Number two, it develops in the human mind. Proceed evil thoughts. Number three, and then it's expressed in human deeds, in human acts, adulteries, fornications, murders, evil that comes out of a human's heart, out of a human's mind. That's what makes the person unclean. That's what defiles us. By the way, in the Greek text, the first seven items, those listed in verse 21 and the first three in verse 22 are plural. And you may not understand the significance of that, but the implication is the significance is that these are repeated acts. In other words, it isn't just the event. It is the repetition of the event over and over and over playing itself out. By the way. The last three or the last six are singular, implying that these are attitudes. These are a state of mind. In other words, it's an attitude that translates into actions or continual actions or what you and I might call a state of mind. At the top of the list, look what Jesus writes or says, evil thoughts, dialogizomei hoi kakoi. These are words that are internal, that are wicked, 
These are thoughts, imaginations, ideas, concepts that are base, wrong, wicked, immoral, unjust, reprehensible. Let me put it a different way. These aren't just a laundry list of bad things that you think. It is any thought that's separated from God and Christ. It's any thought that doesn't take into consideration the loveliness of his character and the wonder of his love and the glory and the beauty of his majesty and grace. These are thoughts that aren't equitable. These are thoughts that aren't uplifting or edifying. These are thoughts that are carnal and not spiritual. And you've got to understand something. The moment that Jesus says that and he invites you to take a journey through the cesspool that's called your imagination. He's going along with you. This is Jesus making the statement. Evil thoughts are a sin against all of the commandments. Now, I need you to understand this in relationship to what's taken place earlier on in the chapter. Remember, the religious leaders have asked Jesus, why aren't your disciples washing their hands according to the religious prescription? And Jesus is condemning them and saying, why does your religion prevent a right relationship with God? And how is it that you can stand the hypocrisy of your own life when it winds up breaking all of the commandments? And then he uses the term adulteries. Moi, K-I. This is a word that's interesting as it's used in the New Testament, because it means sexual unfaithfulness to a spouse. But it also includes looking at and lusting after someone who is not your spouse, whether it is in books or magazines or online or offline, in your imagination. Here is the idea. It's that false, stupid, sinful idea that there's no harm and no consequences if you simply look but Jesus explodes that false idea in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, where he basically says, don't you understand something that it betrays a condition that's inside of your heart? And adultery breaks the seventh commandment. And fornications, pornei. It's a broad, all-inclusive word that incorporates any form and every form of immoral sexual act, abnormal sex act, sexual vice. It's any kind of sexual activity that is apart from the God-given admonition that's given in the Bible between a man and a woman who are husband and wife. Paul writes, flee fornication. Every sin a man does is outside the body. But he that commits fornication sins against his own body in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. He says that we being many are one body that we're joined and fitted together. His argument is that when you're involved in sexual immorality, you're using your body as the very instrument to commit the crime. And there is no such thing as a sexually immoral act that doesn't include everyone around you. 
Because we being many are one body, joined and fitted together. So your impropriety, your infidelity, your wickedness affects every single one of us. Because the body says, because the Bible says that sexual activity isn't just a physical act. It's a spiritual event that takes place in the life of the individual. And therefore it takes place in the life of the church. And then he uses the word murders. Phonos. It is the unlawful taking of an innocent human life. And you might be thinking, well, I've never killed so far. Oh, well, hallelujah. Finally, something on the list that I haven't done. But remember, Jesus takes it one step further. He talks about being angry with your brother. He talks about being angry with your sister. He talks about mentally and emotionally in your life, living in a world where you imagine the world without that person. Has anyone ever said to you, I wish you were dead? They don't really mean it. What they mean is they wish that you lived in China, just somewhere where they don't have to deal with you. Because it's the unlawful taking of an innocent life, you break the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. And then in verse 22, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Thefts is a word that you're going to be familiar with in the Greek language. It's the Greek word kleptai. We get the word klepto and kleptomaniac from it. Kleptai meant to cheat, but it also meant to steal. It meant to wrongfully take from someone else, either legally or illegally. It was... To confiscate something that doesn't belong to you. To take something from, some, from what doesn't belong to you. And so it breaks the commandment, thou shalt not steal in Exodus chapter 20 verse 15. Covetousness, pleonexei, to want more and more of what you already have enough. It's an obsession. Here it's a starving appetite for something. It's the love of having in Second Peter chapter 2 verse 14. It's to crave after it's to go after it's to grasp to, to to possess to please to have power or fame covetousness is an insatiable lust or a craving of the flesh that cannot be satisfied it's manifested every time you quietly whisper to yourself or out loud i can't live without it i have to have it I must have it. It can be an intense appetite, craving, an insatiable lust that never seems to be satisfied. It is a lust and a craving so deep that a person can't find solace or comfort in anything. Certainly not in God. Certainly not in Christ. 
Certainly not in the Bible, certainly not in the promise of forgiveness, certainly not in the hopes that you will be forgiven and saved and rescued and reconciled. Certainly this is not something where you look at your Bible and you go, hey, that God and Christ and, and forgiveness, that's not something what I need. Here's what I need. I need to satisfy myself. And so... It's a breaking of yet another commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his manservant or maidservant, ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. It's that something that wells up inside of you that makes you want to have what doesn't belong to you. And then wickedness is ponerii. It means to be depraved. But it means way more than that. It means to engage in evil activities, to do mischief, to cause trouble, to cause harm to others, to be malicious, to be dangerous, to be destructive, malice, hatred. It's according to, it's a, it's a kind of a active wickedness. In other words, there's two kinds of wickedness that kind of wickedness that you keep to yourself. And then there's the kind of wickedness that you feel obligated to involve others in. It's one thing to smoke marijuana, but you feel compelled to have other people smoke it with you. It's one thing to take drugs, but now you want other people to take drugs. It's one thing for you to get drunk, but you want others to get drunk. It is the idea that you now actively enlist other people to participate in your wickedness. But if you confine it to drinking and drugging and partying, you're making a serious mistake. Because there's another kind of wickedness. Another kind of deceit. That is even more awful. It's the wickedness of unbelief. And a lack of faith. It is the deceitful, deceptive practice of not only not believing that the Bible is true, not believing that Jesus is Lord, not believing that the promises of God are for real. But it is this perverse Portion on the part of the person who feels obligated to bring you down in your faith. It's not good enough that they don't believe. They insist that you don't believe either. It's not good enough that you love and want the promises of God. They want you to reject the promises of God. It's the active pursuit of others with the intention to seduce them and corrupt them. And then we have the singular six, which is a state of mind, which is an attitude. He begins with deceit, dolos. It means to bait or to snare or to mislead or to beguile. It means to be crafty and deceitful. It means to give a false impression by word or act or deed. This isn't just simply participating in a falsehood. This is participating in a misrepresentation, not simply by the things that you say, but by what you refuse to say. It's keeping silent when you should have spoken. It's pretending that something is right when in fact it's wrong. It's a failure to speak. It's a failure to act. It is conniving and twisting and perverting the truth in such a way that you will make it say what it needs to say until it says what you think it says in order to show you, for you to get your way. 
That's the bottom line. It's misrepresenting reality to such an extent that reality has to conform to your disobedience and rebellion. Lewdness is oselegia. It means filthiness, indecency, shamelessness. It means unrestrained evil thoughts that lead to unrestrained evil behavior. It's the guy standing on the corner who's holding up the sign who says, why should I even lie to you? You give me money, I'm going to buy beer. It's where all shame doesn't matter. Decency and opinion are irrelevant. This is the person who began by doing what all of us do. Sin in silence. Sin in secret. Sin in selfishness. But now the secrecy and the selfishness is off the table. This is the person who doesn't care anymore. And has his activity open for everyone to see. Who's willing to post it online. It doesn't matter how filthy and it doesn't matter how disgusting and it doesn't matter how public because guess what? The prohibitions and the borders and the boundaries are gone. An evil eye. You might think that this is some sort of throwback to some superstitious time of long ago. But when Jesus uses the term ophthalmolos, poneros, he isn't talking about some weird superstition. He's talking about a glaze, a glance. It means to look at and want. That's the idea. It means to rest your eye on and to covet and to crave and to desire by looking. This is what Jesus says for the person who says, well, there's no harm in looking. And Jesus says, oh, there's great harm in looking. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 11, verse 34, it says the light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is single, the whole body is also full of light. But when your eye is evil, the body is also full of darkness. This is the person who will open the magazine. This is the person who will go on the Internet. This is the person who will look at the billboard. This is the person who will look at you. They don't even care that you're in church. They'll look at you. And they'll begin to fantasize. About what it would be like to be with you. And then there's blasphemy. Blasphemia. To slander, to insult, to revile, to speak evil against God or man. This is carries with it the idea not only of speaking ill, but of insulting. And then there's pride. Hooper, fania. It means self-exaltation. It means conceit. It means arrogance. It means haughtiness. It means elevating oneself. But usually it's always at the expense of others. It isn't just the simple act of self-promotion. It also, also includes the idea of demoting someone else. And this pride can be hidden. Secret. 
It doesn't even have to be spoken out loud. It is just simply coming in contact with one other person. And all of a sudden, for a brief split second, thinking that you're better than they are. And then there's foolishness. Afro, sune. It's moral senselessness. It's folly. It's recklessness. In the law, it's called depraved indifference. It's thoughtlessness. It's carelessness. It's a person who acts in a way that is inconsistent with honor and duty and decency. This isn't just simply not remembering your wife's birthday or your anniversary. This is the kind of foolishness that makes you void of moral reasoning. This is the kind of foolishness where the writer of Proverbs writes, The folly of fools is deceit in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 8. The folly of fools is to just for a moment pretend that there is no God. That there is no future. That there is no right, that there is no wrong, that there is no heaven, that there is no hell. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So the fool begins to live his life, her life, as if there is no God. All these evil things, it says in verse 23, come from within and defile a man. The central point that Jesus is making is that uncleanness is moral rather than ritual, internal rather than external, spiritual and not necessarily physical. And I need to ask you something. Do you think that Jesus is laboring under the illusion that people are basically good? Not if he's ever been inside of my heart. Not if he's ever been inside of your heart. How much sludge and how much wickedness and how much perversity can we stand? We're sinners, unable to change our nature. Unable to exercise control over our thoughts and our behavior. But I need to say something, and I'm going to say it a couple of times so that you'll get it. God is not against us because of our sin. He is with us against our sin. God is not against us because of our sin. He is with us against our sin. God is not against us because of our sin. He is with us against our sin. And you know how we know that? Because he will offer himself as the sacrifice. He will offer himself. He will offer himself. He will offer himself as the satisfying solution to the problem of the wickedness and corrupt nature that's called your heart. He will live and then he will die. And he will rise from the dead. And you have to understand something. This goes to the heart of the wickedness of the religious leaders and the, and the people who are accosting Jesus, who are accusing him both of uncleanness, but who prefer religion to ritual and who prefer hypocrisy to sincerity because you know what they don't want? They don't want him. They want to be Jews. They want to remain Jews. They want to be religiously observant Jews. But the problem of the heart is still the heart. 
Spurgeon writes, there never was a man yet who was in a state of grace who did not know himself that in himself to be in a state of ruin, in a state of depravity, in a state of condemnation. No wonder Jesus says that a man must be born again to see the kingdom of God. No wonder Peter writes with such great joy, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. No wonder Paul writes in Ephesians chapter four, verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. A new heart, a new life, a new future. So when you read the list, how do you feel? Not guilty? Then you, my friend, are acceptable in the sight of God. Guilty? Ashamed? Then you, my friend, can experience forgiveness and hope and cleansing and light and joy. C.S. Lewis wrote, We have a strange illusion that mere time cancels sin. If I just wait long enough, maybe he'll forget me. If I wait long enough, then maybe all that I've said and all that I've done will be forgotten. It's not true. In his book, The Words and Works of Jesus, J. Dwight Pentecost writes, The Pharisees were concerned about external contamination. They scrupulously observed traditional rituals to rid themselves of that uncleanness and did not deal with the uncleanness that came from within. If a man is himself righteous, he need concern himself only with external contamination. But if a man is himself unrighteous, he certainly needs more than ceremonial cleansing. The Pharisees' concept led them to reject Jesus, who offered them a righteousness from God. They seemed and sensed no need for such righteousness and insisted that the ceremonial cleansings were sufficient, thinking that they were essentially clean within, unquote. It remains true today. You're thinking to yourself, I'm fine or I'm not fine. I'm okay, or I'm not okay. In 1 Thessalonians 2.3, Paul writes, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it from deceit. In other words, he's saying the gospel was given not in insincerity, but in sincerity. In Colossians 3.9, do not lie to one another since you put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. If we put off evil thoughts and put on pure thoughts, if we put off adultery and sexual immorality and put on marital fidelity and personal purity, if we put off murder, we put on love. If we put off murmuring and complaining, we put on praise. If we put off those things that have temporal value, we put on those things that have eternal value. And if we put off unbelief, we put on faith and if we put off worldly entertainment we put on spiritual pursuits Jonathan Edwards said the first 
and the great work of a Christian is about his heart. Do not be content with seeming to do good in outward acts while your heart is bad and you are a stranger to the great internal duties. It means you're not doing what's right. Martin Luther put it well. Either sin is with you, lying on your shoulders, or it is lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, if it is lying on your back, you are lost. But if it is resting on Christ, you are free. And you are saved. His words, listen. Now choose what you want. Do you want the sins on you? Or do you want the sins on him? And by the way, make no mistake about it. Unequivocally, each and every person within the sound of my voice will retain their sins. Or they will place the burden on Jesus. No wonder Jesus said, listen to what I'm about to say. And try to understand. Religion or relationship? Hypocrisy or sincerity? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray that they would not shun, that they would not neglect so great a salvation. Lord, I plead for them and I plead for their soul and I plead for their life. Lord, if I could figuratively get down on my knees and beg them to turn from their sin and beg them to embrace hope and life and love, Lord, I would do so. Clearly for the person who prefers hell to heaven, who prefers guilt to forgiveness, who prefers darkness to light, who prefers hypocrisy to sincerity. Lord, I pray that you would break their heart. I pray that you would reveal yourself. Lord, I pray that you would extend the invitation of hope. Lord, I pray that they would come to know you and that they would come to love you and that they would come to place all of their confidence and their faith and their trust in you. Is that you? Is that your prayer? Is that what you need in your life? After the service, I'm going to ask you to come up here because I'd like to talk with you and I'd like to pray with you and I'd like to make sure that you've made the right choice, that you're free. Lord, we commit this time to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.